This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by the 2020 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Register now at AllianceNet.org. Stay tuned after the podcast for more about what may prove to be our most popular conference ever. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm Amy Bird, and it is just me and one of my co-hosts today, Carl Truman, professor over at Grove City College. How are you doing, Carl? I'm doing very well, thank you, Amy. And yourself? Doing all right. Our buddy Todd had a pastoral issue to take care of, so he backed out last minute. But, you know, I think that I'm a hard worker on this podcast. And I think the listeners are starting to notice that. And I got a gift. I got a listener gift that I wanted to do a shout out. Thank you to Jamie Learn. You see what I got here, Carl? I see. Uh, I, have, I have some thoughts on that, actually. But tell the listeners what it is. I have got my own 100% pure honey from Good News Apiaries in Columbia, New Jersey. Sounds excellent. I would suggest that you feed a little bit of it to your youngest child before you try it, because given your <laughs> reputation on the web now, it would not surprise me if somebody's put polonium or cyanide into it, and it's it's a way of a my youngest child. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly, you know, <laughs> you know, he's the most. I thought I thought your dog had died recently. 
He did. He did. So there is no dog. So we're working up the food chain here. Okay. Hayden is next on the list, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'm going to tell him you said that. <laughs> Kung Fu guy. For the shoes he wore to the homecoming, isn't it? Yes. Uh, you had a hard time. Uh, and I had the shoe conversation with him afterwards. And I, I think there's too much Pruitt influence. I know. I You're probably right there. And why Americans wear such awful shoes. It's, <laughs> well, it's, at least we have some diversity. I mean, you're just Oxfords or busts. That's all you need. Oxfords I think. When, are your house slippers. When you, found, when you find the perfect shoe, that's all you need. Um, you know, this compulsive cultural need to dress like slobs. It's just, oh, it, no, it eats not, away. They weren't slob shoes. <laughs> they were cool shoes, Carl. Yeah, that's, a far, that's a distinction without a difference, I think, in 21st century America. So, anyway, okay, so, Mrs. Yeah. Bird. Thank you to Jamie Learn for my yes. wonderful honey. I'm going to make some of those Scottish oat cakes that Katrina has made. With these. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, uh, and hey, I, I make jam these days, by the way. I you made do? My, I made my first lot of jam the other week. What kind? Blueberry. <laughs> Blueberry. Yeah, blueberry. I can't, right. get, I can't get blackcurrant jam over here. The jams are too sweet. So I had to make my own. My neo-fascist doctor has me on a kind of low-carb stuff. So I've been <laughs> producing my own low-carb foodstuffs in order to... And uh, you made it? I made it, and it's... I say this with all due modesty, but I think I might be the greatest jam maker in the history of the universe. It was so perfect. Very modest, yeah. So I perfect. Detect the humility in that. Yes, yes. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Yeah, speaking Madame of humility, Bird. well, so yeah. last week we kind of had a discussion about church discipline. So we're carrying that discussion over a little bit more to talk about, um, you know, what does church discipline tell us about the importance of church membership yeah. and the Lord's Supper? How, yeah. how does this all kind of connect? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big issue in a whole variety of different ways. I mean, right. one... Uh, I remember as pastor, we'd sometimes get a bit of pushback from people who didn't just visit the church, but sort of stayed at the church for, for a protracted period of time, uh, who didn't understand that there was a need to actually be a member of a church. And I think on one level, that's an understandable response to the church today. Uh, when we look in the Bible, we don't see the language of membership anywhere. But what we do see in the Bible is a, a group of people who are, I think, formally committed to being the mm. body of Christ in a particular area, formally committed to each other, and formally placed under the, the pastoral care of, of local elders and pastors. And the way we articulate that in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, of course, is, is by formal church membership. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a way of committing yourself to the congregation. When you just turn up uh, week by week and attend the services and, and never take up formal membership, it makes a number of things problematic. One, I think Todd alluded in the last program to the fact that it actually makes it difficult for the, the elders to help you at times because they have okay. no formal status or standing relative to you in order to do that. I'd also say it, it can make church discipline difficult as well, because if you're a member of a church and, and you commit some horrendous sin and we go through the discipline process and sadly at the end of it, you've not repented and we move to, say, suspend you from 
Lord's Supper for a time, or, or maybe even excommunicate you, then you're deprived of the Lord's Supper. Uh, mm-hmm. If you keep turning up at a church and taking the Lord's Supper, but are never a member, that can never be done. That can never mm-hmm. be done, which, which raises in my mind a very serious question as to whether uh, membership of a church should be required for somebody to attend and partake the Lord's Supper right. in any church. And that is the official OPC position, actually. We, we read before the Lord's Supper a statement of who is welcome, uh, and I think it's rightly pitched towards making people welcome, but it right. does require individuals to be members of a gospel-believing church the problem there, of course, is that you often have visitors who attend churches where there is no formal church membership, and right. they might be very committed to their church. They might be give generously and serve uh, sacrificially in their context, but their church has no formal church membership. So do we exclude those people from the law? Yeah, do you make exceptions come? after meeting with some people who might either in that situation where they've been you know, what we would think of as functioning members of a church, but that church didn't have that formal setup and now are, you know, hopefully looking to join your church, but are in that interim period. Um, Do you make an exception for them? Or what if it's somebody who has really come out of a church situation where they were members, but they were very burned in that church and, you know, there was bad leadership and maybe they aren't members in good standing of that church, but doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, would you make an exception for them? I I think you're talking about a number of different categories. Yeah, there's different categories. I I see where there could be some. The typical way where it popped up at Cornerstone where I was pastor for a while, or, or as it it might manifest itself in the church where my wife's a member and where I worship in Grove City now is you have a student population. And often you have students who are very committed during term time to attending your worship services, but they may come from churches elsewhere that don't have formal membership. And, and I would say that there are two, there are two sort of ways you can, you can handle that one. You could encourage them to join your church Mm -hmm. during their time at college and to place their membership there. There may be reasons why they're unwilling to do that, you know, emotional ties to the home church, or that's the home church is where they're going to be for half the year. So uh, Mm -hmm. why join you? And so the other option I would, I would suggest is considering the church they come from, talk to them and find out, are they functionally Mm-hmm. members of that church. If the, even if the church doesn't have an official category of membership, is the way they think about their place in that church, uh, is that effectively being a church member there? So we had, the, we had that sort of double way of handling it at Cornerstone and often would strongly encourage people to join us. Mm-hmm. But during that interim period, we certainly didn't cut them off from the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my, my other instinct is always on this and on many other issues is always to err on the side of pastoral charity, mm. uh, to, to take the risk of being too charitable rather than overly harsh. Um, I'd rather, uh, you know, have a, a miscreant at the Lord's table than functionally excommunicate one of the Lord's people, if I could put mm. it that way, if I had to choose between the two. so Because, I mean, would, do you look at that as like ultimately on them and not on the pastor? Yeah, I think ultimately anyone who takes the Lord's Supper is they're taking responsibility for themselves. The pastor mm-hmm. and the, the session can only do so much. 
some churches ask for visitors to meet with the elders beforehand. And I, I, my wife and I have been in that situation. And I certainly don't object to, to doing that. I find that myself perhaps a little heavy handed, mm-hmm. but I'm not offended by it. I think okay. each pastor in each session, they have to fence the Lord's table in a mm-hmm. manner that allows them to sleep at night with a good conscience. So mm-hmm. I've never been offended when I've attended a church and somebody said to me, you know, you need to speak to an elder before you can take the Lord's Supper. And sometimes if I find out it's the Lord's Supper in advance, I'll even ask that question. Is okay. it okay for me as a visitor to take the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper? There was a Lutheran church a year or two ago, uh, and I was the preacher, and they were having the Lord's Supper. And, yeah. and I know that Lutherans can be pretty strict on this. So I'd actually said to the, 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 uh, the Lutheran pastor beforehand, I will not be offended if I don't qualify to take the Lord's Supper at your church. And actually, I was allowed to, which surprised me. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I do think it's something that the local pastor ultimately has to answer for, and therefore right. he has to be comfortable with the practices that his session employ. Well, looking at it, um, you know, taking personal responsibility or as a parent, you know, what are the ways in which we could partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way? Well, um, I mean, the Bible itself contains examples of that, taking the Lord's Supper when you, you feel deep resentment against somebody else in the congregation which is one I think we've all been guilty of at points, yeah. I, I have to say. But, you know, you can, you can make a reasonable effort sometimes to be reconciled with somebody, but if they're not in the business of being reconciled, then ultimately it's on their conscience mm-hmm. if they take the Lord's Yeah, summer. but you should make that effort. Yeah, yeah. So that's an obvious one. <clears throat> I think, uh, again... We need to avoid the, the idea that the Lord's Supper is somehow a reward for being particularly godly during the week. Right. Uh, yes, you don't want to take the Lord's Supper in a lighthearted, uh, flippant fashion. On the other hand, it's, it's not a badge of righteousness. Mm-hmm. The Lord's Supper is for sinners. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always find it helpful when the minister presiding at the Lord's Supper makes that point and emphasizes that point it's for those who know that you know paradoxically it's for those who know they are unworthy to take it if i could put it that way yeah but there's like the difference between knowing you know knowing that we're unworthy were it not for christ but you know there's that line there when you're in unrepentant sin yeah yeah and so if you're living in unrepentant sin you know i think that that would be what paul refers to some in, in drinking judgment on yourselves yeah yeah. Well, the one occasion where I've been at the Lord's Supper and haven't taken the Lord's Supper was uh, I help out in the nursery at Covenant where we worship now. Mm-hmm. So I'm you know, in the back room playing Lego and racer, you know, matchbox cars with, with the little boy who's there. And uh, during the Lord's Supper, the, the elder brings the elements back to me in the nursery. And I actually declined because it's hard when you're looking after a little kid, it's hard right. To grasp the word by faith. And I felt it wasn't that I felt unworthy. It was actually that I felt for me, it would not actually have been a sacrament at that point because it was mm-hmm. not elements attached to the, the words that I'd grasped by faith. Yeah. Uh, and I know we had a similar thing at Cornerstone sometimes. Uh, the, I remember once a guy in the sound booth declined the elements because he felt that he'd been so wrapped up in trying to solve some technical problem during the service that he didn't feel, you know, taking the elements and whether he and I were right or wrong in that, I don't know. But I think in both cases we acted Mm -hmm. 
in a manner according with our conscience. Yeah, yeah. We, we'd have eaten. Yeah, our church doesn't even serve the nursery workers. Yeah, and 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 I think that's a perfectly legitimate policy. Um, yeah, having said yeah. that, though, I wouldn't criticize a nursery worker who did take the Lord's Supper. You right. Know, I, I mean, I think that it. those are matters of discernment there that yeah. we all have yeah. to work through. But what about like why? What about our non-communicant members, our children? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's interesting that in the in the Free Church of Scotland, uh, I've seen this done a few times. I'm not sure that it's done so much anymore, but the the communion was always served at particular pews, and there would be this moment in the church service where those going to take communion would stand up from wherever they were sitting and would move to the communion pews. Mm. So there was this sort of symbolic separation that took place as the communion was served and parents would leave their children Mm -hmm. behind. And that was a very dramatic Mm -hmm. representation of the Lord's Supper, something special. It's for those who have really claimed Christ for themselves. And although we're all part of the visible covenant people, if you like, Mm -hmm. there is this moment when there is this kind of dramatic separation of the one from the other. It doesn't happen in most churches. uh, And I think there it's uh, my wife and I, for various reasons, we never encouraged, we, we didn't actually encourage our kids to become members because my observation was, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but in general, we saw so many parents that we felt they wanted the kids to profess faith as a kind of way of making them safe before they left yeah, home. Yeah. Uh, and we took the view, yeah, I want my kids to own the faith for themselves. Right. When they own the faith themselves, they will make the move to membership. Well, I've we been on both. So- I've done both. <laughs> right. And at first, I think we kind of pushed it more. And yeah. so now we're kind of holding back on that Yeah. Um, and letting our son take the lead there. But both, um, both my boys took it to an extreme, actually, in that the first I knew that they were professing faith was I get an email on the general session email at Cornerstone <laughs> <laughs> scheduling their interviews. Neither of them bothered to phone dad and said, hey, dad, I, I really do think I believe in Jesus. <laughs> So wow. it's kind of, oh, well, they really have owned it for themselves mm-hmm. at that point. But yeah, like back to the communion part of it too, just that ability to be able to be mature enough to discern the elements, like to discern the body yeah. of Christ and yeah. the elements and the relationship there. It is a sacrament that calls us. In Second Corinthians, we read a little bit about that, um, yeah. the importance of that. And so kind of what you're talking about, separating ourselves even and, and I struggle with that with communion myself because there's this weight of knowing what the elements represent, you know, and that uh, the Holy Spirit's, you know, giving us Christ in these elements. Um, and so we need to prepare ourselves before we come, right? But then that moment when it's being passed out and everybody looks so sullen. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast where I'm kind of, there's that going on, but, you know, I've kind of done that work on, you know, before coming. And then at this moment, I'm also thinking of what it represents of what we have to look forward to, that we will feast together on the new heavens and the new earth and um, with Christ. And so that makes me want to like look around joyously and smile during that time. 
I, I think you obviously have a very superficial understanding of joy that us Presbyterians, <laughs> particularly Scottish Presbyterians, express our joy through tremendous solemnity. Oh, okay. uh, sorry, I, I put a picture up the other day of teaching this Doctrine of God course, and I had a, a shot of Eastern Orthodox Catholic Mass and then a lovely Presbyterian shot. We were by far the most miserable looking people on the <laughs> And I pointed out the solemn joy that characterizes Presbyterianism. I, I mean, I think, you're, I think you're, you raise a good point. There is a danger. We live in a very superficial and flippant age. Yeah, you don't want to ca- make it casual. Uh, yeah, but there is, that, there is that joyous aspect of looking forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really hold fast to that during communion. Like, that is like a great hope that makes me rejoice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, in a book I'm just starting to read on that that's, that's interesting. It's written, it's actually by a Catholic theologian, Douglas Farrow. Uh, his book is Ascension and Ecclesia, where yeah. he's really r- raising the significance of the doctrine of the ascension of Christ for our understanding of the Lord's Supper and how the mm-hmm. Lord's Supper sort of does point to both his present absence and his future return. Yeah, uh, and so what you're pointing to there, you, it is that tension between is remembering the death, yeah, the already and, and then not yet, yeah, stuff. and looking forward to to the return uh, of Christ. So, I think the joyous aspect is there. How we demonstrate that, it's, it's yeah. I mean, difficult. I'm not going to clap my hands or go all crazy, but yeah, there's just this great hope. I think. Um, yeah. And a great privilege. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, you can connect with membership in a church too, is and, both that great privilege and the great responsibility. And the Book of Common Prayer is a nice guide on this because the Book of Common Prayer catches both the, you know, you have the prayer of humble access, which is really a very humbling sort of prayer. And then you have the, the joyful response afterwards. Mm. Um, you know, I often say at the OPC, the liturgy such as we have it, I say to students, you know, the theology is great, but it's written by men with no poetry in their souls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and the book, the, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer has a beauty to the language that, that, that lifts that you. Is. You're right. Uh, You're right. And I, I, I think there's, there's much to be said for, for pastors leading the Lord's Supper, to study other liturgies. I've been reading cool. recently through some Eastern Orthodox liturgies just to try to get some good prayers for the Doctrine of God class and show how the Doctrine okay. of God flows over into, into liturgy. Mm-hmm. There are some wonderful prayers. I mean, you, you have to mm-hmm. dig around a bit because there's also some very dubious stuff in liturgies, but there are some wonderful prayers uh, of joyous response to the Incarnation to the Lord's Supper, that mm-hmm. even if we weren't to use them verbatim, would provide fodder, would provide phrases, phraseology, ideas, images that could be used in putting together our own response to, to the Lord's Supper. That's such a good point. Back to preparing ourselves, maybe. What do you think about the Saturday night before communion or how mm. often we take communion even? Yeah. Or, you know, kind of what you were saying about if we do have resentment, especially if it's with somebody in our own church, the honor and responsibility we have to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And it is hard, you know, to be in a position where you have to work that out before yeah. coming to the table. And, and if it's not resolved, you know, to really prayerfully and, and action wise know that you've done what you can do. Yeah. 
And that, I think, is part of the secret in that your own conscience has to be clear that you've made the effort to try to to put things back together. And we've, we've all failed at that at points. It's not I'm not sitting here pontificating, but the best we can often hope for is a well-intentioned effort on our part so that mm-hmm. however the situation is playing mm-hmm. out, we can take the Lord's Supper with a good conscience. We can sleep at yeah. night. I mean, I don't uh, want to get a little too weird here, but um, it's a very intimate meal. Uh, it's a very intimate sacrament um, yeah. being served to us and then to do it together as a body of Christ. Yeah. Um, you know, and you think you wouldn't, you can't be intimate with your spouse without working through your issues. Yeah. You know, I kind of think of it that way in some ways. It's, it's just not real. Yeah. And typically we wouldn't invite people to dinner who we're at loggerheads with. Yeah. I mean, it would just be kind of cruel too. Yeah. So. But that's where I think probably sessions have to be proactive as well. It, again, it, it can be hard because often sessions don't know everybody in their congregation in terms of all of the intimate personal dynamics that are going on. You don't have to like everybody. <laughs> well, I like very few people. I'd be in very serious trouble if that was a requirement. <laughs> I was telling the students, so I'm looking forward to retirement. I won't have to see anybody. I just sit on my back deck, drinking gin and tonic, smoking my pipe and reading uh, <laughs> Swedish crime novels. <laughs> No. <laughs> but you're right, it is an intimate meal and that is part of, typically your first great date is you take the person you're interested in out for a meal and you do that mm-hmm. because meals add a dimension and a dynamic to the personal relationship that, uh, that are transformative. Yeah. Uh, we don't just eat to survive, we eat to be a community mm-hmm. and to be a people. Uh, so the Lord's Supper, I think, is, uh, you can hear my phone going in the background, <laughs> can you? It's another spam call. Good grief. Why do you have a landline? Why do I have a landline? Yeah. Because I don't entirely trust cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you not have a landline? No. That's weird. That's I haven't had a landline in like ages. That's, I know, I, I like a landline. Who calls you? Sure. Who calls your landline? <laughs> Spam That's people. why I don't have a landline. <laughs> but no, the great thing about having the landline is I keep my cell phone on silence. So I'm totally untouchable by a cell phone. People ask my cell phone number and I give it to them, but they can never get in touch with me via it unless, unless I want to return their calls. Oh, anyway, we would, you know, it's yeah, the uh, intimacy of the meal and the ones, yeah. you know, the, the cost of that meal. Yeah, meals are, are an important part of human society. And of course, although uh, John's gospel doesn't talk about the, the Lord's Supper, we have that upper room discourse that is where Jesus calls them friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty rare way for God to talk about his people in the Bible. That's mm-hmm. a remarkable moment that this, this Last Supper is the moment yeah. when Jesus says, uh, you're my friends. Yeah. And it's in the context of a fellowship meal. One theologian said that Jesus got himself killed by the people who he ate with. Yeah. Interesting. Especially see that in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that doesn't bring us to the, really to the conclusion of, of that topic. There's much more that can be said. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would just throw out. One thing we should discuss in a future episode, I think, is to what extent should we allow people who aren't members to be involved in the church? 
Mm. Uh, that's that's something one of my former colleagues, Tim Whitmer, was very strong and clear on in terms of allowing people to take responsibility before membership was a real no-no. Mm. And, uh, and that's he's a something practical we can, theology guy. Yeah, and I think he was right on that. That's something else, some, another direction we could take the discussion in. But certainly, I think the most pressing issue for most churches or most Presbyterian churches is the Lord's Supper and what to do with, with visitors or with those people who, for whatever reason, uh, regularly attend and perhaps are very committed but but don't want to take formal church membership what do you do with them relative to the lord's supper what impact does that have on how we understand discipline and hopefully some of the ideas we've thrown out today uh, will help with that for those of you who are interested in thinking more about the lord's supper in general and its uh, place in the in the in the christian life uh, we are going to give away a number of copies of Thomas Watson's little book, The Lord's Supper. Thomas Watson was a 17th century Puritan, uh, one of the most accessible Puritans. Many of us who love the Puritans, Watson was one of the first people we read and, and was an easy entry point into uh, into Puritan theology. So we're going to give away some of his little books on the Lord's Supper. If you'd like a chance to win one of those, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you'll get a chance to register for the opportunity to win one of these books. While you're there, please remember we're a listener-supported podcast, and there is a a button there which enables you, if you wish, to to make a donation. Um, it's always good that I have enough income coming in to pay for my landline so that spam <laughs> spam callers can make my life a misery. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, we uh, wish you well and look forward to being with you next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Yep, good English phrase. We wouldn't typically use that word in that particular context, though. <laughs> bollocks is more of a kind of that's a load of bollocks. Means it's a load of rubbish. That's the that's the. <laughs> so it is one of my favourite English profanities, though. Um, I have to say, Americans are so you lack a certain richness in in that kind of department. You get obscene very, very quickly, whereas we have all of these intermediate sort of uh, terms that we can use that, you know, I'll teach you a few words you can use here and get away with, but you wouldn't want to use them in Britain, you know, just use them with Americans and they'll, they'll think you sound sophisticated and British.
For the first time, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology will focus on a single book of the Bible. Plan now to join Philip Ryken, Derek Thomas, Joel Beakey, and others for Revelation, the Sovereign Reign of the Exalted Christ, March 13th through the 15th in Grand Rapids, and April 24th through the 26th in Philadelphia. This long-awaited conference may prove to be the most popular to date. Register now. Select events at AllianceNet.org to sign up online or call 1-800-488-1888. 